the mysterious vigilante is in the news again. A little more than two hours ago, in an 8th Avenue subway underpass, two men were shot. One died on the spot. The other managed to reach the street before he collapsed. He died shortly afterward in the hospital. Both had long criminal records. The vigilante himself may have been wounded. Good evening, Mr. Cursor. Or should I say, Mr. Vigilante. Welcome to Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Hosted by Arnie. You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll say. Stuart. Well, he did seem a bit odd. Not only odd, the guy is crazy. It's that simple. And Jacob. I admire you. I'm a real fan. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Listener discretion is advised. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. It's showtime. Today, we're taking aim. At Death Wish 2, starring Charles Bronson, Jill Ireland, Vincent Gardenia, directed by Michael Winner. <laughs> this is Arnie. <laughs> I'm not in L anymore. I have no congestion problems with the fog. It's just Stuart. And this is the host who's ready to meet Jesus, Jacob. So it took eight years for Death Wish 2 to come out. Because Charles Bronson wasn't old enough when the first one came out. <laughs> What's funny to me is I think of sequels usually being rapid secession, especially in the early 80s when we had a Friday the 13th every year and things like that. But really, it was the late 70s, early 80s that got franchises moving and they started looking back and saying, what can we make a sequel to? I think somebody along the lines thought that Death Wish was one where they could make more money. There was a sequel book after all. Yeah, there are two reasons, I think, major reasons why we didn't get it in 1976, 1977. One, Bronson didn't need it. Bronson was a big international star before, and once this hit in America, Bronson was big, 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 and he made a, literally a dozen pictures before he even thought about doing Death Wish 2. And he was highly paid and all kinds of genres, love story, western, spy thrillers. I watched some of them. I said that I was going to try to make an effort to see more of his work because I just didn't know about him. And I want to give a really strong recommend to Hard Times. It's a boxing movie from 1975. And that means that, yes, Bronson is a 54-year-old boxer. <laughs> hey, we've seen Stallone do that for like three or four movies now. <laughs> yeah, it was the year before Rocky. I think if it had come out after Rocky, it might have more visibility. But it was set in depression times. It's the first movie by Walter Hill, who would go on to make 48 Hours, The Warriors, you know, produced all kinds of movies from Alien to Predator and what have you. It's first film, and it's really strong. I was really impressed with how well it's made. It's essentially kind of a take on The Sting, where James Coburn is his manager, and they're going around trying to get rich boxing, and it's a perfect role. Look, I don't think Charles Bronson is a great actor, but sometimes you can use his stoic 
stoic, tough guy persona to really good effect. And this may be his best role. I thought it was fantastic. So we haven't seen Death Wish 5 yet. (laughs) Well, that's what I mean. As we go through these sequels, and I feel like I'm going to be probably unkind not to show too much of my hand on this podcast about what I feel about Death Wish 2, I wanted to start on a positive note and say, definitely check that one out. And yeah, you know, we did other things. I saw Telephone, which is sort of a Cold War version of Manchurian Candidate, where the phone rings and you hear something and it makes you snap out of your American life and become a sleeper spy for Russia. He played the Russian agent trying to clean that up. Funny thing on that, if you remember in the movie Grindhouse, there was a caller into the radio show of the Tarantino one. That poem that he was reading, it comes from Telephone. Tarantino must love this movie, but I didn't really love that movie. I think ultimately why we didn't get a Death Wish 2, though, was because Dino De Laurentiis didn't like sequels. He was one of the big producers on that first movie. He worked with Bronson again. They made a really crazy Jaws ripoff called The White Buffalo. It was Imagine Jaws <laughs> set in the Wild West with Wild Bill Hickok chasing uh, albino bison. it's as good as it sounds it's really trippy and cheap and not very good but that was the last time that De Laurentiis worked with him you know we've talked about De Laurentiis with Stephen King Blue Velvet you know he makes all kinds of really kind of schlocky movies usually but he never makes a second one he always wants it to be original and he said Leave it to the ripoffs. You know, honestly, this is the stuff for the grindhouse. I spit on your grave, rape squad, vigilante force. Let that be the Death Wish sequel. I didn't think we're getting a canon picture till next week, but I definitely notice Golan and Globus's name at the beginning of this one during the opening credits. Yeah, you're on to him. That's why we have the sequel. And in fact, what I heard on the commentary, this had a special edition Shout Factory release that had a commentary by author Paul Talbot, not somebody who worked on the film, but he wrote the book Bronson's Loose, the making of the Death Wish films. And what he said was Golan and Globus were going around telling everyone they were going to make a sequel to Death Wish. They'd never talked to Dino. And Dino was like, (laughs) I'm going to sue you. And so they wrote Dino a check and made him a contract. I can just imagine all the accents going on in that debate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For those that don't know, and I think any child of the 80s knows canon films, or at least you should have. We've covered them a few times. New Year's Evil, Masters of the Universe. Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Yes, exactly. At this point in time, in 1979, they were... Were pretty big Israeli filmmakers that wanted to go to Hollywood. And so they bought Canon Films. It was like a schlock, kind of did porno and horror movie kind of company that was basically running out of money. So they bought it cheap. Now we're Hollywood. Let's make our movies. And they made a string of not very successful films, like a musical called The Apple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> widely considered the worst musical of all time. And I wouldn't disagree with that. And The Last American Virgin. I don't know if you know that one. I do know that one, yeah. Yeah, it didn't quite translate to American box office. But it was a teen sex comedy. New Year's Evil, as we already pointed out. But yeah, they thought that Death Wish would be the thing to get them big time. And Dino, because he didn't want to make it, said, okay, I'll sell it to you for $150,000. But in order to get Bronson, they needed a script. 
And so, as you mentioned, Arnie, uh, there was this other book. Brian Garfield wrote a follow-up to his book, Death Wish, right after the movie came out. It was a rebuttal in many ways. He felt like Hollywood had cheapened his source material and said vigilantism was good, and he did not want that to be the message. So he wrote up a follow-up where Paul Benjamin, that was the name of his character, was living in Chicago and watching copycats. And the copycats were killing innocent people, and he had really kind of inspired a wave of violence that he did not intend. Meanwhile, he is still going out and killing criminals as well, and apparently not killing the wrong ones. And it all builds up to him meeting a doppelganger of sorts, another man just like him who's out there killing, and they face off. I think we get to cover this movie. They did end up making Death Sentence with James Wan of the Saw franchise and Kevin Bacon, and because it's not using the Paul Kersey name, we're going to wait until after Death Wish is done to cover it. But we will cover it as soon as we've covered the Bruce Willis movie. Yes, then I think we get to have covered most everything James Wan has done. I always say he did this one movie, Death Sentence, and then had to go back to the well of horror. Well, now we finally get to see what that is. I've just called it a blight on his resume, sight unseen. Yeah, Death Sentence is not a very good book, but it's an interesting premise. I liked some about it, but it's most of the time people are just standing around quoting statistics, and it's just, it's not satisfying as drama. I'm sure James Wan didn't film that. So, no <laughs> doubt the guy who made Saw has a whole lot of vindictive, grisly behavior to talk about, but that wasn't what they were going to make. They were considering using the title Death Sentence when... Charles Bronson blanched and said, you know what? I don't need this. I'm rich. I've already done this movie. I'm not feeling it. And so they were thinking maybe we'll do it with another actor. They had different versions of the script that were set in San Francisco, different people involved. And then at the last minute, Charles Bronson said, okay, I'll do it for a half million more than I normally get paid, which is a million and a half. He made the most money he ever made on Death Wish 2. And he also insisted his wife get hired, and she made, I believe, 750000 so he really made two and a quarter million for this <laughs> film in order to, as the guy doing the commentary, Paul Talbot, said, fund their lavish lifestyle and hang out with his wife on set, which is why Jill Ireland is in this movie. Yeah, he did that a lot. Did they always want to meet Jimmy Page, too? Is that how they got him to do the music? No, actually, the director was next door neighbors. Yeah, we'll talk about the music in just a minute. But the director, that was the other stipulation. Charles Bronson said, if I'm coming back, I'm going to have a real director. I'm not going to have this no-name Minaham Golan direct me. I'm going to have a quality director. And so it was agreed that they would get Michael Winner back. Michael Winner directed Death Wish and then went on to kind of screw up big time. It's kind of sad when you look at what he was offered to do and then what he did. It was like he was given the omen. He said, no, 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 I'm going to make The Sentinel, which was this ripoff about a fashion model finding out that the gateway to hell is in her apartment building. It scared me as a kid. I went back and watched it thinking, oh, this movie's really scary. Maybe the last five minutes will frighten young people because it's really gory, but it's, it's really boring and it's really badly acted and it's no good you know benji was a hit movie series about a dog in the 70s <laughs> he did that no he made the copycat wonton ton the dog that saved hollywood i'm sure you all knew that <laughs> never even heard of it nope <laughs> i have not heard that one he made an action movie with oj he remade humphrey bogart's the big sleep he made bad choices okay so you're telling me his name's ironic he's not winner <laughs> He 
kept working. So in that way, he was doing well enough. But yes, he was really struggling to keep the momentum going after Death Wish made him an A-list director. And so, yes, he agreed to come back. And it was probably mostly for money. And I think the other thing that he said was what he saw as an opportunity to do in this one, he wanted to do in the last one, is have Paul Kiersey get the actual bad guys that hurt his family. If they were going to do it again, they were going to get the people that hurt Paul's daughter. I also think maybe he was just jumping at the chance to do a whole lot of raping on camera. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. We are definitely, unfortunately, going to have to talk in detail about that kind of thing. Brings up the point, there are different cuts of this movie, most notably an unrated cut and an R-rated cut. Both are pretty severe. Which one did you guys see? I saw the R-rated cut, and man, I can't imagine having to sit through the unrated one, just for what was added. I saw the unrated one first. I then went back. The only differences are in the first 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, this was confirmed by the commentary. But also moviecensorship.com said that it's just the, yes, two rape scenes. There's actually multiple rape scenes. Yeah. But in just the two rape scenes is where the cuts were. There is a third cut of the film. There was a cut made for television because this is a shorter movie and they knew they'd have to cut probably all the rape out. Yeah. In order to air on regular television. And it was a popular movie. So it was a Sunday night movie of the week on network. So yeah, they had to air something in place of all of that sexual assault. Fortunately on YouTube, somebody took the only place that's been released to home video, a German VHS tape, and uploaded it to YouTube. It's funny, they were really thorough. They're like, here's five extra frames from the German version. So I got to see a few extra dialogue scenes as well, one of which is definitely worth bringing up. But mostly it was like establishing shots with a little bit of music to bring you back from commercial break. Hmm. Yeah. And again, this was a big hit, even though, you know, sequel, no one seemed to want to do it. They didn't really have the right script. They planned to come out Christmas 1981, because this definitely feels like a Christmas movie, right? Bring the kids for Death <laughs> Wish 2. But they wisely delayed it a couple months, put it out in February, and it ended up making almost as much as the original, 16 million, about 6 million less than the original, but still a big hit. It cost a lot less than the original. You could tell that by looking at it and the fact that they moved to the shoot. It was supposed to be San Francisco. It's all in Los Angeles now and in some really sketchy parts of Los Angeles. Apparently, they had to have like 20 cops with them on. Do they really use Skid Row? I was wondering that. Not only did they really use Skid Row, they really just took people off the street and said, you're a star. We don't want the paid extras <laughs> to be in the background. We want the authentic thing. Yeah, because we could pay you scale. Or possibly nothing. It was Skid Row. Here's a hot dog. However, the one really conspicuous one, the pimp not so brutally shaking the hooker those were actors yeah and then a sad note too charles bronson gave his brother a part here too he was helping him out he was trying to get clean he was an alcoholic apparently and then died during filming and that someone actually murdered him like stabbed him in the buttocks and he bled out really weird story but yeah there were some professional and semi-professional names in this cast but yeah mostly they were going for grit and michael winner boy well, let's talk about where he goes. I've never seen a director so defend rape. And not as far as an act, but as far as putting that act on camera. As far as filming it for a story, Michael Winter seems really pro-rape. Well, I think that if he's putting that out there in the interviews, and I've read a lot about what he's had to say, it's because it's going to be 
pretty provocative. I definitely feel like this is one that, yeah, well, let's get into it. Arnie, give him the plot, give him the rapes, and we'll get into Death Wish 2. When we last saw architect Paul Kersey, again played by Charles Bronson, he'd been run out of New York City due to his vigilante activities and moved to Chicago. But this movie picks up two or four or five or eight <laughs> years. Thank you. I had questions about the timeline. <laughs> yeah, some amount of years between two and eight after the original Death Wish, Paul has moved to L.A. and taken with him his daughter, Carol now played by Robin Sherwood, not the same actress as last time, and Carol is still recovering and still institutionalized due to her trauma from the first film. Paul also has a girlfriend, L.A. reporter Jerry Nichols, played by Bronson's real-life wife, Jill Ireland. That's why she's so bad. <laughs> but the rampant crime in L.A. won't leave Paul and his family alone. One day, while taking Carol on an outing for ice cream, Paul gets mugged, and his confrontation with one of the muggers makes the gang bloodthirsty. From Paul's wallet, they get his license and find out where he lives. They go to his house and rape and kill Paul's maid, Rosario. Then when Paul and Carol arrive at home, they beat Paul and kidnap Carol. They proceed to rape Carol at an abandoned warehouse, causing the girl to run out of a second-story window, impaling herself on a fence and dying. These events push Paul back to his vigilante ways. He refuses to help the police try to catch these gangbangers, and instead he gets a room on Skid Row, grabs his pistol, and goes on the hunt. He does find and kill two of the gang members, and this alerts the police that they may have a vigilante, and they contact the NYPD to see if it may be connected to their vigilante story. Afraid of being found out for covering up their vigilante investigation, the New York DA sends Detective Frank Ochoa out to L.A. to investigate and possibly kill Paul? Frank follows Paul one night, but Paul comes upon the last three gang members doing an arms deal, and Frank and Paul team up to shoot the gang members, but Frank is shot and killed. Two more of the gang members die, but the fifth gang member, called Nirvana, escapes Paul's wrath. The police arrest him, but Nirvana is just sentenced to a mental institution for his addiction to PCP. Paul's girlfriend, Jerry, tries to convince Paul that this is the correct thing. Never mind that Nirvana caused his daughter's death, but rehab in a mental institution is the correct course of action. It should be rehabilitation, not vengeance. But Paul decides to pose as a psychologist, go into the mental hospital, and kill Nirvana. Seeing some evidence of Paul's illegal activities, Jerry leaves Paul, but he returns home and to his architecture career <laughs> as credits roll. And maybe some more killing, too. We do have a few more sequels to get to. But yeah, this is the L.A. Death Wish. I did not realize they were going to go there. Yeah, why not Chicago? Chicago had a pretty clean reputation in the 80s. I know that L.A. has its crime stories from the later 80s, but was all of L.A. this crime ridden in the early 80s? It just, it seems like a weird characterization. The whole thing with, yeah, gangster rap coming out of L.A. and Compton, but that does seem very late 80s, but I'm, I don't know. I was a child in the early 80s. I wasn't aware of crime statistics living in L.A. Yeah, I mean, I think it had a reputation of being seedy, but usually seedy for its attraction to the movie business and all the lecherous people that are there. It's shot in L.A. because this is what they could afford. That These were budgetary constraints 
But maybe because they had to pay Bronson more, it meant that they couldn't film where they were planning, like San Francisco. Or, yeah, maybe Chicago, like it was in the book. And they had to get Jimmy Page to play that sweet guitar riff over the opening credits. Yeah, we didn't talk about the music last time, and I wish we had, because I am a Herbie Hancock fan. And any child of the 80s knows him for Rocket. That music video with all the robots kind of doing the instrumental dance. Yeah, the song's good. The video's better. Yeah, but he was a jazz musician who was really, I think, cool and key in fusing with contemporary funk and disco and rap and synthesizer. He He's just not afraid to experiment and push the boundaries of jazz. And in the 70s, he was doing a whole lot with the Headhunters. That's what got him the gig last time. I didn't really love the score. That's why I didn't bring it up. I do like Kirby, but the score was fine. It was interesting. Yeah, I thought there were some weird choices. Like, we go real jazzy at times. And I'm like, would not expect that in this kind of film. Yeah, I agree. I didn't necessarily care for the score last time. And I'm feeling the same way this time with Jimmy Page. It's like, I liked this opening riff. I'm like, all right, I got our opening credits music. There's some good rock music going on here. Eventually, it sounds like a dying cat. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> the producers, Golan Globus, wanted to keep the funk going. They were like, let's get the guy that did Shaft. They called in Isaac Hayes. He got the gig. And Michael Winter just kind of resented the fact that, like, oh, you're taking away my artistic control? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to do Isaac Hayes just because you said I have to. And so he literally went next door to the house next door where he lived. And that was where Jimmy Page was. Led Zeppelin had busted up. He wasn't doing anything. So he said, sure, why not? And he was really into doing experimental things with electric guitars. Like, he takes, apparently, violin bows and, you know, strums a guitar like you would a violin or a cello. And so, yeah, we have a score that is atonal. I know that you don't always love that, Arnie, and it's it's weird. What I resent about the score is not the weird experimental sounds, but every now and then they'll have a melodramatic version, like, oh, we're going to cut to the girl and the romance, so let's have some overly saccharine love music. Yeah, that's the stuff that really sticks out like a sore thumb. The tone is all off, but then again, maybe that's fitting for a movie like the one we're here to discuss today. Not every note was done by Jimmy Page, though. I know that the credits said Jimmy Page. The commentary did say some of it, like when they do a little bit of a more Asian-sounding stuff when they go to Chinatown, was not Jimmy Page. So some of that may be somebody else. But I can definitely tell when it is Page, and some of it, when he's rocking out, I like. When, yeah, certain things, when he tries to get moody, it really has the opposite effect. It pulls me way out of this movie, and no more so than at the very beginning. Jacob, tell me if you had this problem. Could you understand a damn thing being said on that radio station over the music? I was wondering if it was my DVD, like the audio was like glitching at times. I'm like, is that the radio station? Is it a bad DVD? I'm like, I hope this doesn't go like this through the whole film. Yes. I was the same way. Okay, so it's a bad transfer or something. Yeah, turn on closed captions to try to understand what they're saying during this opening. But I'm like, this is one shitty audio mix. And I got the Shout Factory special edition where they were supposed to fix everything up. Yeah, apparently you just can't fix this monoral track. I mean, I, I was able to make out enough that this is a war, that they're just setting you all up for the crime thing again. It yeah, the point is that L.A. is every bit as bad. It might have more sunshine, but every bit as bad as New York City. And if Paul is here, he's out there 
cleaning it up, right? Except I don't think we know that at the beginning. And that's something that the screenwriter had a huge beef with, that David Engelbach, who is the credited screenwriter, claims much of what he wrote in the beginning, first half of the movie, was thrown out by Michael Winner and Golan Globus, and he's pretty angry about it. He wanted to set up the fact that Paul was going to do everything he could not to go back to his old ways, that he had seen the error of vigilantism, and at every turn, L.A. was so crazy, it was telling him he needed to pick up the gun when he was trying not to. Yeah, this feels like one of those just rote sequels that you, yeah, 10 years after the fact or eight years after the fact where we're going to have to just play those beats of the last one because, well, I guess there was like home video at this point, but and it was probably being played on TV. But if you just wanted to go see Death Wish 2 without having to see that first one, yeah, this is going to be set up the same way. We don't see any regret, any struggle anything from Paul. Like, at one point, eventually he's going to pull out a gun. I don't even know where he gets that gun from. He just has it in his closet. And it's not the same gun as before. No, I could tell this one, he doesn't even handle it the same way. I mean, we're, we'll get to his killings, but all the nervousness is gone. When he pulls out that gun, he's like an old pro with the clip and everything. He's even got some hand-to-hand combat skills this time around. Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's definitely... And that will only increase, right? I mean, I, what I remember from my hazy memories of watching Death Wish 3 and 4 is that the violence is only going to get crazier and we're going to get rocket launchers and a whole arsenal of things. Right now, they're still trying to limit to it's just one man and a, a gun that he could have bought at any store anywhere. Yeah, and the only real holdover we have, other than we have... Paul, as an architect again, strangely architecting for a radio station or something. Somehow he's involved in a radio station. Apparently early drafts of the script, maybe it is what Engelbach had written. Kiersey had changed. He was going to be a radio station manager and Winner said, nah, let's keep him an architect, but still keep every single bit of your radio station plot in there. Architect is like the most fluid job ever. Like he could transfer to Chicago. He meets a girl, Jerry. She's going to go to LA. I'll just transfer my architect stuff to LA now. Like, wow, an architect could really go anywhere. What we're supposed to understand, I think, is that he's redesigning this. Well, I don't know. It's a radio station, but sometimes it's on TV and it also does print journalism as well. <laughs> Jerry's involved in all of it. She's their star reporter. And because he's there all the time drawing up plans, I guess it's time for a romance. I don't know. This guy never is working on actual blueprints or anything. So No, the whole plot with the radio station is the president's wife is the one making all the ideas. And Paul's trying to go like, oh, go with the concrete. That's the cheaper one. Oh, but she wants these angels and all. It's weird how much time they spend on the architecture of this radio station. It is to the point that you to almost expect the climax to be at the building <laughs> that he is supposedly designing. But the real holdover from part one is his daughter, Carol. And like I said, new actress. And no husband this time? No, yeah. he got left in New York. He's never mentioned. So I'm just assuming that eventually after two, four, five, or eight years of a catatonic wife, he was done with it and... He ditched her. He didn't want to put up with it. Was there anything in the commentary about that timeline? Because it's so confusing. What was specifically said in the commentary is the movie contradicts itself on how long it's been since the previous movie. Well, no shit. I got that from watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that they'd all prefer that we don't think of Bronson as being 60 years old. They don't want it to seem as long as it's been between the two movies, 
but he is older. And Michael Winner said it. I don't know if it's true. He was very angry at his star because he went out and got a facelift right before they started. And he said, I wanted to use his weathered, older quality. And he came in with this puffy face. And I was very angry. But I never said anything. Yeah, he looks about the same age as he did last time. So I could see the two years thing. But my God, what they do to Carol, what they did to her last movie was abhorrent. But to take that same character and to do basically the same thing to her again this movie, oh my God, there's cruelty going on. She's a fictional character and my heart is bleeding. She's speaking this time at least, or she said a few words over the last five weeks. But when... Paul and Jerry take her to go get some ice cream and that gang's there. I'm like, oh, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. And you do not do that to this kind of character. That's already comatose from being raped. You don't make her a a victim again. It is mean spirited. Yeah, it it was challenged. I remember in one of the many interviews that where Michael Winter had to defend rape and does so the LA Times put it to him that like, this is not likely, right? There's not a good odds that Kersey's daughter would fall victim to the very same thing a second time his response and i quote oh i don't know perhaps the poor girl is just accident prone oh my god it should also be said that michael winner is dating this actress and maybe that's why the husband is not there he wanted this girl other people wanted another actress in this role and he kept auditioning her and seeing her and then was seeing her on the side And it may have also led to the scene that we're about to discuss. Yeah, there's another quote he had when he was asked about sequels and how different it would be. And there's just a quote in here that chills me a little bit. He said that the film is same but different to the original. Quote, that's what sequels are. Rocky 2 and Rocky 3, you don't see Sylvester Stallone move to the Congo and become a nurse. Here, the look of Los Angeles is what's different. Besides, rape doesn't date... Yikes. Yeah. This guy, Uh. he's lucky social justice warriors weren't around in the 80s because they'd string him up by his toenails. And he deserves to be. I mean, I wish they were because what we're about to talk about is horrible. In any cut that you see, yes, the fact that Carol has to endure this again is wrong. The fact that we also have to get in the housemate, I guess because one rape is not enough. It's a sequel. You got to have two They basically mug him. It's not just a pickpocketing. He chases one of them down, so he still has a little bit of that verve, that fire from his old vigilante days. Yeah, that's when he busts out his kung fu that he all of a sudden knows. Yeah, but he, he chased the wrong one. The guy says he doesn't have a wallet, but that gives this guy a bloodlust. You know, he wants revenge on... Kiersey now, not knowing that it's going to come back on him tenfold. So they decide to go to the house on the driver's license and just wait to kill him. Yeah. And Rosaria, who there's a lot of stuff with her at the beginning. So I'm like, oh, she's going to be a victim. She's sitting there, I guess, getting dinner ready for Paul, Jerry and Carol. In the uncut version, this is about three and a half minutes. And it is absolutely agony to sit and watch this horrible, horrible scene. You will notice that there are two cinematographers credited on this film. It is because the cinematographers walked off the set when they saw how the director handled these scenes. I mean, apparently on set, it was pretty kind to the actress, the people, you know, we got Larry Fishburne here as one of the gang members involved in this. 
They were all very kind on set, but this was six days of shooting Rosario's rape, and the cinematographer had all he could stand. My thinking is, it's actually a little bit more horrific in the rated version. In the unrated version, it goes on so long, and the gang members are just making these weird laughing noises and things, that it almost just becomes very desensitizing and the shorter version where you're it's not quite as explicit my imagination is doing much worse things oh it's plenty explicit it's pretty explicit in the rated version not a whole lot left to the imagination and you're gonna get those faces that these gang members are making and i'm like is this supposed to be funny that's where i'm at yeah is this coming out like comedy in the absolute worst of taste and i think in the unrated version almost plays that way and no i'm not laughing but i it feels like the director or the actors they were make it funny you know make these weird faces as you're raping this woman yeah of course i think most audiences are meant to be again we talked about why did they show the attack the last time the supermarket that led into the assault in the apartment it was to give us the motivation to get behind what Paul was going to do. We needed to see something so horrible that we could root for someone to do something so horrible as what Kersey was capable of doing. Here, I don't even feel like we talk about these actresses as soon as these scenes are over. There's no residual pain left by this. This feels obligatory and exploitive and just ugly. According to the commentary, I didn't get this from watching the movie, but I don't think Paul would necessarily have gone on a gun rampage if it was just Rosario, his maid. Maybe he would have. Maybe he was really attached to his house staff. But the fact that they take Carol, and yes, this is deplorable to do this to the same character. Again, a fictional character, but one who is still traumatized by being raped previously. The fact that she plays it like she's, I don't know, a child or, I mean, obviously something is mentally wrong with her. It, again, it's all the way they're filming it and depicting it in this movie that just makes it feel gross and wrong. I mean, it should always feel gross and wrong, but I don't even want to watch this at this point. The screenwriter didn't intend to show this. There was no Rosario. There was no woman cooking lunch that got attacked. There's no need for that. Other than, yeah, Death Wish 2, we want two. We're giving you double what you got the last time. And I guess there was the mom and the daughter last time. So it was two women victims and they wanted to keep that here. But the screenwriter said, I was not going to have Carol raped. I was going to have her triggered that she was about to be raped. And the memory of that was so painful that she went running through the window and killed herself. Yes, and this is again where Winner comes in. No, we're just going to rape. And this one in the unrated cut is so much worse. So much worse unrated because she's not gang raped. She's only raped by one person before she does take her own life. But in the unrated cut, it's like the guy, he's sucking on her nipple and like being tender because she's not fighting back so he's taking full advantage of that that's the thing in the rated version they almost make it look like she's welcoming it like she's spreading her legs and again this is why it just feels extra wrong yeah the actress did say that it was her choice not to scream that they had told her you're supposed to scream and she felt like she had worked so long on playing a mute to her, the character was incapable of making sound. It's mentioned that she barely ever speaks, that she didn't want to have that be the sound. So for whatever it's worth, the actress, method trained, said my character wouldn't do that. Here's what I'll say. 
if the intent of this scene is to be creepy and to make me dislike these guys and to make me feel gross for even witnessing it, this scene really works. But it is repulsive. I don't need it, though. It, the plot was these gang members go and wait for Paul, and they beat him up when he shows up and then run away, and he's seen him, so he's going to go after him. I'm cool with that. That works as a revenge story. I don't need multiple sexual assaults. Yeah, we don't need the women at all. It should be said that this is about Paul and five guys who tried to mug him. And the fact that they use women in this way, at the very least, it feels exploitive and manipulative and then when you hear these things about michael winter and this is his girlfriend and keeps filming day after day until his camera crew quits in disgust maybe this is a fantasy for some i don't know i mean i do know there are people with rape fantasies i don't know what his predilection is i even go so far as to say kill the daughter make it personal make it something eye for an eye if you're gonna kill that you should be killed. Just mugging Paul is not enough. Kill someone. But you could make it a crime of opportunity. She saw us kill her. They already had one really brutal rape. They don't need to have more sexual assault in this film. And in fact, the daughter, Carol, is not the last sexual assault in this film. It's horrible. No, and it should be pointed out, the last time we saw Paul Kersey, he was doing finger guns at people. He never gave up the life. So it wouldn't take any push for him to be out there mowing down. Again, the screenwriter wanted to say that he had had a crisis of conscience in between the sequels and was doing everything that he could not to go back. After this happened, he had written all of these scenes of the character trying to follow a life of pacifism, trying to get back to his liberal roots. You know, he'll end up going to a cabin and cutting wood. And there was a whole plot line where he was finding serenity in nature and then he finds out he's next to a survivalist camp and they come in with their guns and show him guns so they're going to replay the arizona stuff because i feel like that stuff is missing from this one all the character stuff the stuff that made me like paul or, or get the conflict he was going through i feel like all that is removed from here and okay fine it's a sequel for a film called death wish make it a great action film well guess what folks it's not going to be a great action film so i need that character stuff what I got from this, though, is that he was not still a vigilante. But why, though? There's no why to that. Yeah, we would definitely want to know what happened in between pointing finger guns at bullies in Chicago and being in this situation. But finger guns is not real guns. And the way I took it was once OSHA took his gun in New York... That was the end of it. What? No way. You did not take the ending of that movie that he had reformed his way. I'm talking about this movie. When I saw this movie, I feel like he hasn't shot anyone since the last movie. I agree with that. It's weird, though. I don't expect that, so you need to justify that. Yeah, exactly. That isn't what we were set up to believe. There's no... Don't you think it's weird to have a totally different character than what we had at the end of the movie with no explanation about how he got there? The fact that he's in a new city and he's choosing not to go kill people wantonly i don't question that no the willingness of a former bleeding heart liberal as the last movie made abundantly clear to not be killing people i don't have to ask why is he not killing people la is so liberal right we just whenever you're there you're just suddenly eating organic and oh yeah try sitting in the traffic <laughs> here that will make you Take up a gun. Yeah. But I think that's the character arc here. And what I didn't get, and this is what the commentary said, 
is that after Carol dies, and this is so bad it's funny to me, she gets up after her completely stoic assault, immediately she's really fast, buttoning up her shirt, running out a window, it's a second story window, and then she just happens to land and impale herself on a fence... Yeah, the way it plays in this movie is that she's trying to get away. What the screenwriter had intended was that she chose to kill herself rather than be violated. Oh, I took it that way. Oh, I took it as an escape that went wily coyote kind of wrong. Oh, no, I took it as a suicide attempt. Like, she wanted to be dead. It's difficult to know because the acting is so bad, but... <laughs> I was under the impression in this cut that I watched that she would have been happy to jump out the window and land on the ground and keep running. And so what's supposed to happen now, the reason we don't see Paul all broken up about her death the way you mentioned, Stuart, is because he's now a dark, soulless shadow, his humanity gone. So he's just a killing machine. And they reflect that in the wardrobe, the members-only jacket. I loved it. It's a really a members-only jacket is gone. A wool cap and a black coat are in its place. And so he's not going to weep and tremble the way he did about his wife and when his daughter was first institutionalized. Now his plan is vengeance. Yeah, I don't get any of that from this, though, because they haven't set this character up. And that's a huge mistake. I mean, obviously, you want to psychologically be with your main character and where he's at and why he makes the decision to kill and when he makes the decision not to kill. And what this is just saying is, oh, you know, we're going to do the exact same movie only in Los Angeles. And I am laughing that Paul is such a square that even when he becomes this soulless avenging angel, he's still got to wear, you know, he's got his black beanie on, but he's still got to wear a sports coat. Very well-dressed killer. He looks like a cop. I mean, he's got a sport coat on. He's in the skid row. There's so much going on there. Again, that hysterical pimp and hooker scene. Every other building appears to be some kind of mission of some sort. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how skid... I, I don't know what it's like now, but definitely in the 80s. I mean, that it, look, all the homeless are there. It, it's an awful place to be. I was trying to see, what are they trying to do with all this religious stuff? Because, again, he's going to ask one of the gang members, is he ready to meet Jesus because he's wearing a cross? And I don't know, maybe they're just trying to kill time as he walks around and sticks his head in all these different missions and hear people preaching about the Bible. But it, this never seems to be a deal with him. Them that thou shalt not kill, like that conflict never arises. It's shocking that it's that way. And it, you're exactly right. In any B movie, you have a man of faith counsel the vigilante and give him reasons to reflect on what he's doing. And that should be happening here in Skid Row. He should have a roommate or someone that understands his position and tells him to go a different direction. That's called drama. But this isn't a drama film anymore. It's becoming an action film. And we're supposed to cheer. It never was a drama. <laughs> I think the last one, Bronson gave some drama with the shaky hands, the drinking. Yes, no, Death Wish won. The first one, I agree, but not this film. This this is an action film. Yes, exactly. We're supposed to cheer as he gets that gun and goes out and gets his vengeance. And if you're not cheering, then the film has failed you. But this is the point where the movie picks up for me because... It's a very simple motivation. He's going to go out and avenge his family, and I'm on his side. And he's going to do what he didn't do in the last film. He's going to find the people that committed these crimes against him. What, again, is shocking, you said he looks like a cop. I wish he did some detective work. He's just going to walk around till he recognizes people. It's terrible. Yeah, I can't believe. And it's so many scenes of just 
wandering around. It's like they had no clue what they were doing. I'm sure they weren't scripted. I'm sure it literally was. Let's wander around and whoever we see, Hare Krishnas, whatever they were, the people that were on the street when the camera crew showed up to set up the shot, they got put in the movie and that's what they filmed. And whatever was scripted just doesn't make it in here. Yeah, and it's amusing to see Bronson so fish out of water and so just wandering around. What does bother me is I kind of liked Kiersey's The Punisher-like attitude last time. You're going to try to mug me. I'm going to kill you. He wasn't hunting for the people who hurt his wife and daughter. He was just stopping crime. Here... He's going to watch crimes happen and be like, oh, those aren't the people. Just go ahead and keep criming. Even when he finds people that assaulted him, the first one, he's running around, they're doing some kind of drug deal, and he lets the other drug dealers go. Why wouldn't he just shoot them all? It makes him even less likable. I mean, whatever you felt about the character last time, maybe you never got behind his vigilante ways, but you at least felt like he, in his mind, thought he was cleaning up the streets by doing what he's doing. Now he is just, yeah, it's purely a mission to get vengeance for what happened to him personally and not to make society better. And I think that that makes him less of a hero. He's still avenging his family, but I wish he would stop other crimes along the way. The other thing is, he's not a great shot. Last time, he was this amazing marksman. I'm surprised this was directed and rewritten by the same guy who made the first film. There's so little character continuity here that I'm like, wait, he was able to hit some guy square in the chest at 50 yards last time. This time people are running from him. He's missing. That's not the Paul Kiersey I know. Yeah, Bronson's bad. I'm just going to call it out right now. He's very unfun to watch in this movie. That I would think that even if you loved him and was cheering him last time, he's hard to cheer for. He's so just unpleasant on the screen, walking through it, just barely there. Yeah, I feel like he acted in the last film as much as Charles Bronson can act. Here, yeah, he's just showing up. He got that paycheck, he got his wife's paycheck, and he's showing up with that funny-looking mustache of his and not doing much else. Oh my God, in her scenes, that the worst stuff in this movie is the Gerald Ireland love story. That stuff, talk about something that should be cut. This is god-awful. But one big advantage of this movie is it's barely past 90 minutes. I remember putting it in and being like, I don't know what I think of this movie, but it's short. Not short enough. I agree. There's so much of her just like coming over to visit and, oh, he changed the locks. Oh, here's a new key. Oh, how about we get together for dinner? Like, where is all this? I'm waiting for her to be sexually assaulted and killed at some point. I mean, I feel like this film is going that way. Because... It's his wife. It was in the contract that nothing bad would happen to her. Yeah, indeed. Last time, there was discussion about bringing Jill Ireland in to play Charles Bronson's wife in Death Wish 1, and he didn't want to see his wife, for obvious reasons, put in that situation. And so, yes, he's going to protect her and her screen image here. That's fine. Give her something to do. I know that she's interviewing a senator about capital punishment, and she has some vague dialogue sometimes about... I guess, turning the other cheek and being anti-vigilante. Sort of. It'd be helpful if she was actually reporting on the vigilante crimes and therefore was offering her opinion as he was doing it without realizing it. Which is what was in the Engelbach script. Yeah. When Kiersey was running the radio station, he was telling her, don't report on the vigilante, trying to keep himself out of the headlines. As it is here, she's completely extraneous until the final act. 
Yeah, if you're not going to have a priest be the moral center and talk to Paul, it should have been her. She seems like a liberal bleeding heart talking to that senator and believing in rehabilitation. I'm waiting for a discussion like that to happen at some point. It's never coming. I don't want it. I don't know about you guys, but I'm here for an action movie, and I don't want somebody telling Arnold in the mid-80s when he's blowing up things with a bazooka why don't you talk it out and i don't want that here i feel like they set that up with the first death wish film though that this was going to be a series even though there be movies that they would actually be somewhat introspective about that but nope that is relegated to the first film and i don't think that's ever coming back it does come back she does play that role in the final act here's the thing you bring up arnold in the 80s and yes this is being released in 82 but i think of charles bronson being the equivalent of Clint Eastwood, the silent, tough guy. And Clint Eastwood made a whole lot of movies where violence is questioned, from Unforgiven, The Beguiled, Hang Him High. There's so many times where Eastwood is willing to look at the act of vigilante violence and come down on the side that it's wrong. And then there's the Dirty Harry films. Yeah, I mean, those movies are about that, but he is sort of an urban hero because he decides that the law does not protect the innocent. And so he makes choices that other cops do not. Yes, I mean, but it's a part of the dialogue, always, in Clint Eastwood movies. I expect it here. It is not here. And you know what, Arnie? It's not a fun Arnold one-liner. Who are writing these one-liners for him? Goodbye? That's a terrible lie. The only good one-liner, do you believe in Jesus? Well, you're gonna meet him. And it's not even that great. No, and it's confusing because then you're implying that his soul is saved. <laughs> I thought he said you're going to need him, not you're going to meet him. Meet him. Yeah. No, you're going to meet him. Well, it could be at the judgment seat and he's going to be sent to hell, but... Okay. You know, whatever. The point is, I don't find him very satisfying as Clint Eastwood or Arnold Schwarzenegger in these very underlit, unimpressive, boring scenes. The only compliment I have, really, is that I actually think that the gang is better. Sorry, Jeff Goldblum. I actually like these five guys, <laughs> the way they look, what they're given to do. I feel like they are memorable faces that you would be able to pick out when you're wandering around in Skid Row. And for their brief moments on screen, I think they work as thugs and heavies. I got a real RoboCop vibe off of this gang. It reminded me a lot of the gang of thugs from RoboCop, who also were just despicable people who would conduct sexual assaults and blow up cars. I, I think it's because of Stomper. He has the same facial hair as the one that gets melted by the toxic waste. Yeah, that very well could be why, as he really does look like the doctor from ER who was in that film. And Lawrence Fishburne with those pink sunglasses. Again, this is just hysterical to me. You said you were bored. I was never bored as long as those guys were on screen because they're hamming it up. Yeah, they're good, and I did read about how they got into character. They spent months, like, dressing and going to real punk clubs in L.A., trying to blend and all that. You wish that their hard work had paid out. You wish, honestly, that the movie had more for them to do, but their scenes are monotonous. Every scene, they're going to do the same thing. If there's a woman on screen, they're going to assault her. If there's drugs, they're going to sniff it. If they can pull out their ghetto blasters and knives and brandish them, they're going to do that. That's what's so funny. At one point, there's, like, I think when there's three of them left they're just hanging out and dancing yeah <laughs> with their boom box yeah i definitely wanted to know more about them there i'm like wow could they just be in breaking <laughs> yeah i loved this gang i love to hate this gang i mean it's weird that i could enjoy their screen presence after what the script has them do 
But maybe it's just Lawrence Fishburne's smile and all of it. But these guys, and they're so over the top. The fact that, yeah, they're going to ride a bus later on, and instantly there's one woman on it. They're going to start harassing her and playing the boombox in her ear. And when she gets off, they're just going to start spray painting. They're so wantonly criminal. They remind me, honestly, of the Mad Max movies, where you, there it's a lawless land, and you can just do anything. That's how they're acting. And so I want them to be killed. Yes, maybe Bronson isn't giving me much as Paul, but I'm certainly hoping his aim is true. Yeah, and again, all these guys worked again. You keep bringing up Lawrence Fishburne because, yeah, he would have decades of careers after this, and we knew him already from Apocalypse Now. I think there is going to be, like, one famous punk in every one of these. Every time we do a Death Wish, there'll be a Jeff Goldblum or a Lawrence Fishburne. But, I mean, even Stamper here. I mean, his look is great, and Kubrick saw this movie, put him in Full Metal Jacket. One of these guys, Jiver, the next one to get killed, he would go on to be a casting agent. I mean, all these people worked again the lead guy was put into spielberg cast him as a villain in lost world yeah i looked him up on imdb fishburne's the one who i knew without looking him up apparently according to the commentary also there's a couple of acting coaches in here including one who would teach angelina jolie how to act and it's with jiver after he's caught by paul Well, him and the rest of the gang. Stomper's out at this point, but the rest of the gang, they're assaulting a couple. Paul shows up. He starts shooting. Jiver gets killed while, what, trying to run over Paul with a forklift. And that's when the cops realize that they got a vigilante again. And and we're going to bring Frank Ochoa back? I didn't expect that. Yeah, well, first of all, they've had this other cop, Mankiewicz, who's just, like, so awful about the mugshots. You gotta give me the mugshots. That's all that... I guess it's their commentary on how bad policing is, that if you're not doing the mugshots, that he's literally yeah this couple that was assaulted he's going to let them bleed out in the parking lot until they agree to go downtown and look at the mug shots and yeah he so we get that the idea that the law is just as much a problem as the gangs here that they're just as despicable on some level and that paul could just as much go around shooting cops for the way that they heartlessly tell him oh yeah carol died whatever now come down and see the mug shot hey they returned that crystal kitty see that again was so bad it was funny to me when the cops come we have word on your daughter how is she and then we jump cut <laughs> to the sheet pulled back off the body i mean that is funny yeah it's pure canon films they are tasteless it's funny because it's incredibly bad taste canon film is always bad taste i mean we're definitely going to talk more about their style in the coming weeks you're right the movie is so over the top sometimes you don't want to laugh because of the subject matter but the presentation is just so tawdry it's tacky this movie is very tacky but this cop i think he wants to do good things he wants paul to give him a description of these criminals and paul doesn't paul doesn't trust this cop before we've ever been shown a reason not to trust this cop. But here we see he is a really ineffective cop because he's going to let the innocent people bleed if they don't give up the vigilante. And I got the another laugh. Oh, it's a big black guy with a red beard. But it's taken from the original movie, though. There was a scene where a guy was being mugged in an alley and Bronson took them all out. And then the police come to question him, give us a physical description. We know people don't want to rat out on the man that saved their life and they don't trust the cops. And so that sentiment felt very much more of the 70s New York, 80s L.A., 
Is that true? I mean, maybe, I guess. I don't know. These feel like yuppies that would feel like the cops protect them, but maybe because they're wearing those plaid suits or whatever, they don't have that opinion. The fashion is <laughs> abominable for them, but they were just saved by the vigilante. I could understand no matter what city you live in, whether or not you normally trust cops, you wouldn't give up the person who just stopped your wife from being sexually assaulted. Yeah, and Mankiewicz is, is obviously, I mean, he's acting like, we got to get this killer. I mean, this mother fucker i mean he's literally saying yeah I, we're not trying to help this guy or thank him for his good service when we find the vigilante that protected your wife we're going to nail him just as we're nailing all of these punks they make no distinguishment between people that kill to protect the city and people that terrorize the city but as jacob mentioned achoa coming back i didn't expect it at all and when i saw vincent gardenia's name in the opening credits all i thought is they're going to start hunting together, aren't they? I pictured this as a buddy thing. Yeah, they will eventually by the end of this film. But yeah, the New York politicians and police, they're nervous that, oh, everyone's going to find out we let the vigilante go and they're going to come down on us and we're going to lose our jobs. So we're going to send Frank out there to, what, kill him or to just get him to stop again? This is the one extended television scene that really made sense to me because here... First of all, I thought maybe they got the same DA back because the DA and the police chief are talking like they were involved in the conversations in the first movie, but they didn't bother bringing back either of those actors. These are new actors. But the scene ends with Ochoa says he's going to go out there and try to stop him quietly. And the DA says, or kill him in the TV version both the police chief and Ochoa push back against the or kill him line. But the way it plays in both theatrical cuts, both the rated and unrated, it's like, is Ochoa really being sent to kill Kiersey just to cover up the fact that they didn't kill him a few years ago? Yeah, and it's a big stretch to even say that he's the vigilante. I mean, they know that he's moved to L.A. It's a long shot to say he's exactly the same, as if there have been no other vigilantes in the two, five, eight years of <laughs> New York's or L.A.'s history. It could have been the lady with the hat pin moved out to L.A. and is doing it now. <laughs> but his daughter was yet again raped. Yeah, so he finds that when he gets there. He doesn't know that, but it's the front page headline of the LA Times, which I just think is outrageous, that it would never make the front page. Random guy that moved to LA's daughter was sexually assaulted is not a three-page story. The point is, yeah, he gets a whole big data dump, and he quickly understands that it's gotta be Paul, and so there's nothing to do but comedy at this point. Unfortunately, Vincent Gardenia is just kind of hamming it up as he's tailing this, you know, he'll end up confronting Jerry and telling her things that Paul did in New York, and she's starting to question him, and then he'll end up on this wild goose chase with a taxi driver and a car that he absconded from some woman that's just happy to have the police take her car away. And <laughs> See, more unintentional comedy. When he says, I'm the police, she just looks so happy. And Gardenia's again doing the sniffling, sneezing characterization. This time, it's the smog. I guess last time it was supposed to be a winter cold. But here, the smog is causing him to sniffle and sneeze. And yeah, the fact that he has to take multiple cab rides. And I gotta give 
Creasy some credit, too. How many bus transfers does that man do to get to Skid Row from his house? And, of course, he's riding with the gang. He does his classic move of newspaper disguise. They're not going to be able to do that in the Willis one, right? Like, there's no more newspapers. He's going to have to have a new way to sit amongst the hoods and not be noticed. A, he could hide behind his iPad, or B, there's still newspapers. I still get one every single day. Yeah, it would feel weird, though. You'd look at the guy that was reading the newspaper. I don't think so. I still see him regularly on the New York subway. But that leaves three, and I was thinking, well, this movie's gonna take a really fast turn. I figured they'd be killing him one by one and draw it out to the end, but he gets to the last three all at once, and I'm wondering, well, where's this movie going to go? (laughs) It's going to go to the Warriors. (laughs) What is this deal that's happening with the old man with the satin shirt and the rainbow suspenders who's buying guns for cocaine or something? This is a really hilarious drug exchange. Well, and they got snipers in the trees, too. (laughs) It is over the top in the same way that the Warriors is over the top. But yeah, just bad. And this is uh, Ochoa's big death scene is that he's actually going to give up his position to warn Frank that there's a sniper in the tree. And that's the point of him coming to L.A. That was everything that it was about. (laughs) To save Paul. I I will say my favorite scene of the film is during the shootout when one of the thugs gets shot in the face through his boombox. Yeah. Yes, I do love that. That's Fishburne, right? It That's is. how Fishburne okay. goes out. <laughs> that he, I love it. It's just so crazy. All these drugs are supposed to be angel dust. So you're supposed to take it. You know, earlier we see them smoking. It looks like weed to me. Oh, that was supposed to be angel dust? I thought they were just smoking weed the whole time. Yeah, it's supposed <laughs> oh. to be they're smoking angel dust and here the drug is angel dust. So if you take it that he's whacked out and my go-to for angel dust is helen hunt throwing herself out a window on a after-school special (laughs) but that's why he held a boombox up to his face like it's a human shield and he can't be killed with a boombox to his face and instead of the body shot i would think to shoot through the boombox and kill him this is arnold level stuff That one scene is. Not even the whole scene. That three seconds, which the screenwriter said he wrote, putting in there knowing it was a cheer moment. And every time he's watched the movie with people, people cheer. Yes, it's one of the few times where you feel like the violence is at least fun. If it's not going to have a point. I mean, the the fact that we get the car with all the guns in it, like going off a cliff and then explode. Like, <laughs> look, I know it's early 80s, but it already feels cliche at this point. Yes. The fact that it immediately explodes. I see it going off a cliff. I didn't see a cliff anywhere near there during the shootout. I don't even know where they're supposed to be in L.A. during the shootout. And the cabbie said there was some historical monument down there, but there shouldn't be any activity there at night. I thought you guys might know. But apparently the historical monument is right by a deserted cliff. And I'm like, is the car going to blow up? Yeah, sure enough, the car blows up. And I'm like, this is so cheesy. Yeah, it feels like it should have been the end. But unfortunately, they've got to make a big point about how the legal system protects the criminal. And this was kind of where the sequel book was. Death Sentence. Paul was dating a lawyer. She was a prosecutor, but he was learning about cases. And when people got out on a technicality, he would specifically target them and hunt them down. I feel like maybe that should have been the movie here. That's already, though, the first Dirty Harry film. 
a guy with mental illness and can you lock him up if he's just mentally sick in the head? Yeah, this is a weak ripoff of, of Dirty Harry. <laughs> Even the first one is a let's just do it with an average citizen instead of a cop. Dirty Harry is clearly the superior movie to Death Wish. Well, what's so weird is that Nirvana, this final gang member, he's being staked out by the police. Paul's going there to try to get him before this all goes down. He can't, though. I don't know if you guys are into police scanners. I got a police scanner. I don't know what they look like in the 80s, but that just looked like a radio that Paul was driving around with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, another boombox. Just a big old FM radio. Yeah. But Nirvana escaped that big shootout and that bad cop comes and actually kills one of the gang members. He he survived the gunfire, but the cop's going to push on his wound to find out where Nirvana is or who Nirvana is, actually. And Creasy's going to try to beat him there. He's got that police kid. He's going to try to get there before the cops can because I think he knows what's going to happen with the justice system. He doesn't make it, though. Nirvana gets confronted by the cops. Creasy has to watch from a window. And then one cop shoots Nirvana with, it looks like a tiny harpoon. Do you guys have any idea what that is? Taser. Old school taser. That's what I thought. I I looked up taser to see if it was. Apparently tasers have always had two connectors, though. You have to have like a positive and a negative charge to hit somebody. So I have no idea what they hit this guy with. Yeah, they're evil cops. The point is that, yeah, they're terrible. They're led by Mankiewicz. We're not to be happy about the fact that Paul didn't beat them to the punch. And he had his moment. He was there in the hallway. This guy was, of course, assaulting a woman right out there in public. He got a few shots in, but he's just not a good shot anymore. God, sexual assault number four. Ugh. I think what that taser is supposed to say, though, is the cops didn't want to kill Nirvana and... If the cops had killed him or Creasy had killed him, I think Paul would have been happy. But they're, yeah, they're using non-lethal weapons to try to take him down. And he's kind of super powered on his angel dust. He's throwing cops around. It takes almost like a football pile to get him down. Yeah, that was the thing I always heard about PCP and health class and all. was like, if you take it, they can shoot you 16 times and you won't even feel it. (laughs) It's not true. I don't know. That sounds pretty good. Can, like, everybody have that as end-of-life care? <laughs> so Nirvana, he goes, he runs out. He has a knife. Like, he tr- he stabs a cop, and the cops take him down, and then they're like, well, he was on PCP. What can you do? Not responsible. I'm like, he tried to murder a cop. That's the death penalty right there. Even attempted murder on a cop is a death penalty. Like, it doesn't matter if he's on PCP. Does California have the death penalty? Like, I mean, you guys mentioned it's a liberal state. I kind of think they don't. We still have it. It doesn't get used. It's very hard to actually get someone put to death now, but it's still on the books. Not to mention this movie. He's 35 years old. I don't know L.A. in 1981. Being on drugs is not a mental illness. You know, the legal definition of insanity is the ability to differentiate between right and wrong. And if you have that ability, even when not high, you would be criminally culpable for all of your acts. And so the fact that he gets put in a mental hospital and he'll be let go as soon as he is fine again, you know, Oh my god, that is, this is the worst conservative viewpoint of a liberal 
it's pandering. I mean, what it's saying is to people that are inclined to believe that there is no justice and that cops are bad and that you have to take action into your own hand and everything that Paul is really ascribing to, it just panders to them with this kind of corny, cartoonish characterization of what would happen if somebody was a cop killer. And it really is cartoonish at this point. Like, Jerry just happens to know a doctor at the state hospital. So Paul's like, oh, yeah, why don't you... I want to hear his uh, arguments for rehabilitation just so he can get a fake ID badge. It just all becomes very convenient at the end here. Here, I would ditch Jerry, though. He should have broken up with Jerry. No, he proposes to her. He does the opposite. Yeah, he buys a bottle of Dom Perignon and gives her the ring and has a nice rooftop lunch, I think, at an Asian place, and they decide to get married. But I'm sorry, if criminals raped and caused the death of my daughter, don't tell me oh, that person deserves rehabilitation. Don't try to tell me that person deserves a minimum sentence and to be let back out. Even if you believe it, just keep your pie hole shut about it because I'm still grieving and working through my pain. The fact that Jerry is going to say, why don't you go come to the doctor and you can talk to him about his methods and then you can come around to why this is a good thing. She needs to go. Yeah, I'm not sure what Paul really feels. I don't even know if he's capable of love at this point. I would think that emotionally he's not ready for dating, uh, given all that he's gone through at this point. But yeah, the idea that he's going to suggest that they run away to Acapulco, some of that is so that his liberal girlfriend won't see the news reports about what he's about to do at the hospital. Does he love her? Does he want to be with her? Or is he using her to get into this hospital because she knows this doctor? I don't know. They didn't need to do this. All I got to say, if you want a real clean version, his daughter was institutionalized in a mental ward. Why not have it be the same one? He goes back for her personal affects. The end. Yeah, that would be cleaner. I think he really does love her. I think he's ready to again put the gun down. He was planning to kill Nirvana. Then when he killed those five, his hunt was done. And so he was looking to what his life would be after the fifth death. And that's why he got engaged. Bronson isn't giving it to me from a performance. But when I look at the acts he's taking and the things his character's doing... That's what I read of it is he wants to have a family again. He lost his daughter. And so let's start a new family. Let's go to El Capoco. I'm going to finish my hunt. And then this chapter's behind me. Let's start a new chapter together. Yeah, I do get that, that he wants to start over. But there's no dramatic tension to any of this. What's going on with Paul? Like they have not built him up as a character with an arc. No, and Jerry ought to know that if this is what happens to his family members, she needs to get far away. She's a fool for taking the ring. But of course, it's not going to work out. She's going to find out that he's photocopied. How does this work? <laughs> what security system in any facility anywhere in 1981 would allow you to photocopy a handwritten badge? Well, what's so funny is like they're just photocopied. Yeah, with handwriting on it. And he's like, no, my handwriting's too messy in that one. I'm going to crumble it up and throw it away. <laughs> yeah, this is such a poorly staged version of an irony that they want to get to. Oh, come on, poorly staged when he walks into that interview room when he finally gets in to talk with Nirvana and he's like what's all this equipment I can't even do it Charles Bronson but what's all this equipment here oh that's from our shock therapy but <laughs> we don't use it anymore oh thank you like flashing bulbs what's gonna happen with Nirvana here yeah not only setting up that this guy's gonna die I was a little disappointed that like his head didn't explode when he finally gets the bolts <laughs> 
that's for three, four, or five. Yeah, but they didn't have the money for it, so they just have to put his hair on end. But it also sets up the fact that the guard is old school, and he's like, I don't like all of this kindness stuff we got to do now. I'm for giving them shock therapy. Again, this movie is advocating at its core. I mean, I can get, Arnie, that you'd be behind getting revenge on people that hurt you, but this is about inflicting fascism, and this is about torture. This is saying that we have the right to, like, just brutally just do terrible things to people. It's hard to get behind. In a movie, I can get behind it. You know, you killed my family, you die. I could get behind it. If this was real life, I'd have a different aspect. Nothing here is real life. Sure. And so I don't have to apply real life morality to it. And so I want him to kill those fuckers. Absolutely. For this movie, it would not be satisfying. I don't know dramatically how they could rig it that he gets to this interview room and goes, you know what? I'm going to let the system take care of you and walk away. Yeah, because they have not set that up at all in the rest of this film to be that kind of movie. This is wish fulfillment. If something happened to my daughter, I may wish for somebody to hunt down and kill all those people. Yeah. And so that's what this is on screen is he's hunting down and killing and... It's a very extreme viewpoint, but this is what I want to see. And the fact that he is killed by a tool that is supposed to help mental health and he's using mental health as the crutch to escape prison. There's a little bit of irony to that. And the hair that goes standing on end is, again, laugh out loud moment. With a cool, action-packed revenge flick, I don't know how much laugh out loud moments I want, especially during the climax. But again, there's this weird timeline. Is it two, four, eight, five years after that last film? This orderly's like, I'm going to give you three minutes to get out of here before I ring the bell. He rings that bell super fast. That ain't no three minutes. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. not. It was 90 seconds. I timed it. Long enough for him to get home late and find out that Jerry has found out about his deception and is so horrified that she's quitting her job, apparently, going far away from L.A., giving him plenty of room to now just go kill people, any people uh, that he deems he wants to at the end of this. But I don't think he's going to. I think he's put the gun away and he's going back to his architecture job. He has no plans. He can go to a work party now. Arnie, do you not understand what he just said? He said, oh, what else would I be doing? Ha ha ha. Cut to him down in the barrio shooting people. Yeah, he's in all black again. He's in his killing outfit. Yeah, when I'm not at the office party, I'll be doing this. Both times you're saying the end of Death Wish 1 and the end of Death Wish 2 is about the character giving up the gun? No, I thought the end of Death Wish 1 was ambiguous. Here, honestly, when I saw him at the end, I thought that it was like a flashback. I thought it was like a hurrah moment for the audience. I didn't think he actually went out on the hunt. No, that's the joke is that the radio guy is like, oh, what do you do at night now that you're all single? And he's like, oh, not a whole lot. And then cut to him. Yeah, with his murder outfit on. (laughs) Yeah, I just thought it was him looming larger than life because it's in his shadow. But yeah, I guess it is the murder outfit. I'll put it this way. I don't expect when Death Wish 3 starts starts that he's been on a killing spree for however many two four eight years it's been between that movie and this one no because there's a reset button it seems like they hit it at the beginning of this movie where it's just like no we'll put him out at the beginning where he's not killing but then we'll do something really horrible and exploitive to put him back in the who's gonna die next that's all i want to know yeah who's gonna have to be sexually assaulted we're gonna get yeah his grandmother uh, visiting cousin Winner is back to direct, so I have a feeling we're going to be seeing more graphic rape. Yeah, I know where this goes because I have seen some of Death Wish 3. I have not, but until we get there, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Death Wish 2? 
Jacob. I feel like I got I gotta give a whole justification here because I'm not a big fan of culture. Like if something's funny, it's funny. That's how I know if a joke works, if I laugh at it. And so when you talk about things being offensive and all that, but oh, this film with just its sexual assault just turned me off because of the way it's depicted, because I don't feel like it's trying to make a point about it, that it's trying to be realistic about it, anything. It's just ugly and nasty, and it's just torturing women to give a man some motivation to kill people. Like, right there, that that makes this a not recommend. The fact that the rest of this film is just a a real boring action movie, not a whole lot of action. It's got Bronson walking around Skid Row, not doing a whole lot. When there are gunfights, they're not exciting. It's just an ugly, nasty, boring film overall. And, And yeah, it's under 90 minutes, but man, it feels long. So this is a not recommend. Stuart. Agreed. I'm hoping it's the worst of the series. I Fingers crossed this is as bad as it gets because it's caught between two worlds. It wants to have the pretense of being that moralistic movie of the last time. It wants to be serious. It wants to capture the spirit of Death Wish 1. And so none of the violence is going to be the campy fun that we associate with Death Wish 3, 4, and 5. So it's just trapped in the middle. It just ends up being this really exploitive tacky vile thing in which yeah the rape scenes are horrible to behold and there are no good kills there are no good lines you cannot root for bronson in this you can't have a moral debate about what he's doing in this i know it gets crazier from here i'm hoping it gets better than here i'm certainly thinking that it's going to be more fun there i can't think of a worse time to have than to sit through death wish 2 this thing is horrible Well, I'll agree with you both that this is a really bad movie, but where I disagree is boring. I was not bored at all during this. I find it to be just unintentional comedy. You want to go on a tour of Skid Row when you come to LA next time? Not necessarily, no. I also don't want to put on a wool cap in California, and I don't want to go killing people, nor do I want to have anything happen to my family to cause me to kill people. But... From the -the over-the-top performances of the gang to the completely dead facial expression of Bronson throughout to the, honestly, it sounds like a cat being gutted while still alive in the score. I'm giving this movie a brown arrow. This is so bad it's good. I had an uproarious time watching this. I couldn't believe how crazy and just severe this film is this isn't camp i don't feel like a lot of this is played for outrage i don't think it's intentional camp i think it's campy as hell i mean because you have lawrence fishburne doing some funny dances doesn't make it camp i think what jacob said is accurate this is mostly just wandering around skid row looking for a plot in poor cinematography bad acting no good no tension no romance no moralizing nothing Not a few moments went by that didn't have me chuckling in some way from that horrible pimp fake shaking the hooker in that awful acting to the bad dialogue at the radio station where he asked one of the employees, hey, can I just have your extra police scanner? And the guy's like, sure, let me give you a lesson in how to use it. I was forehead slapping throughout this film and yeah i think you gotta see this movie it's a debacle and it's horrible but it's something to see it is truly so bad it's good 
Wow. No. It's strongly against that one. I think you're going to be pleased with the rest of the series then. If you thought this was outrageous, well, then you just wait till next week. That's my hope. My <laughs> hope is it keeps going crazier because right now this film, the first 15 minutes of it made me feel really icky. If we could just get a camp vibe going throughout, I'll be much happier. But this one, I'll give it a green arrow if it does that, if it's like intentionally or so crazy. But this one, it's not intending to be funny, but I laughed my ass off. So it's a brown arrow. Or I should say not next week because next week, Jacob Brock and I are going to a different part of Los Angeles in 2049. Blade Runner 2 is out, and we are going to catch up with it in theaters this weekend and have a full report next Tuesday. Then after that, we get to Death Wish 3. Then we'll do Death Wish 4. We got to take a break again for Thor, Death Wish 5. And then eventually we get to that Bruce Willis one, which I've finally seen the trailer for. Yeah, between the time we recorded our first show and recorded our second, the trailer did come out. I've got to give everybody on this call a pat on the back. We guessed it. It's looking a lot (laughs) more like Death Wish 2 than Death Wish 1. Yeah, but we wondered, is it going to be in Chicago? Yep. What about cell phones and cameras? Well, he's going to end up on YouTube and is he going to, you know, that first Death Wish film is weird because Paul never went after those who actually killed his wife, but it definitely looks like they're going the Death Wish 2 route for this one where he's going after the killers. Yeah, the use of the heavy metal music, sometimes it made it look like a Trump rally. It's either going to be a condemnation or a celebration of our current presidency. I'm waiting for the Red Band trailer. I want to see the Eli Roth part of this film because I didn't get a whole lot of Eli Roth with ACDC playing. That's true. It just seemed like John McClane had another bad day and needed to try to find a killer. I'll tell you this much. I know Eli Roth is very graphic. It won't be as gross as Death Wish 2. It just can't be. Well, it won't be as icky. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Let's hope. Again, I'm hoping that this is the the worst of the entire franchise. It could easily be. And speaking of icky and a more fun kind of icky vibe is in Glory Icky. This Friday, we have Phantasm 3. You listeners demanded the Phantasm series. We hit that midway point this Friday as our silver level donation. Remember, silver level donation, $10 or more, either donated to us or donated on our patron. You get the five Phantasm films. $25 or more, you get the Phantasm films plus nine and whenever it comes out a 10th hellraiser review and platinum 35 dollars or more playing level for 45 dollars or more we're going to add on to that the seven child's play reviews with cult of chucky coming out in just a couple weeks all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate and thank you to all the donors and to all the patrons who've been supporting us And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me with this death wish. And until next week, your death wish has been granted. Oh, I'll be back soon. It's not necessary. It is for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If they hadn't have broken us up, I would have killed you. Next time, you won't even see me coming. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Are you getting the most out of life? Are you satisfied, fulfilled, happy? 
For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. <laughs> oh, what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Hope you guys have a good time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, huh? You know where to come back to if you want some more. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. I ain't known for my community spirit. Show me some money. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Give me the money, homeboy. <laughs> Give me the money now. It's collection time, Charlie. <laughs> collection time. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going to beg you, son of a bitch. Please. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. Stick them in concentration camps, that's what I say. We want to especially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, Anders Marath, and David Billington. Well, that makes you a preferred customer. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're a writer. Write about it. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Might amuse you though, being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests where you can win movies and soundtracks. Can we just all please... Be civilized for once before I kill somebody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm so glad you wanted to come along. The more people that understand our work, the better. Now Playing's Death Wish series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're tough. Yeah, you really are. Just a matter of keeping busy, Sam. Now Playing's Death Wish series is edited by Heath and Arnie. The guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Now Playing's Death Wish series credits announced by Brock. I underestimated O'Shea. It's not gonna happen again. The Death Wish films, all audio clips and music used are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Death Wish films or novels. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast. 
with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or book series. You're not thinking of going back to your old ways, are you? Is that such a bad idea? Let the cops take these guys down. You know, sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. The opinions expressed at Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Some people would say that was an extreme position. I don't care. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Whatever you little fucks think is important, ain't important. So stop! Stop it right now! Goodbye.